what's happened to the American diet after that is that people went on much higher carb and higher sugar diets. And it's since then that we have seen a astronomical rise in obesity and diabetes. I mean, astronomical. So sugar has by itself suppresses the immune system, but it also will result in these insulin responses, which increase inflammation and just make symptoms worse and harder to control. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast, we are covering mental health. We're covering depression and anxiety and fatigue, which are very common problems that present in practice. A lot of folks struggle with this. We're also going to go into other disorders such as OCD, suicidal ideations, bipolar addictions, and PANS syndrome, as well as eating disorders, specifically anorexia. And we're going to link these back to Lyme disease and how Lyme can be a contributing factor in some of these issues. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and today I have a returning guest, Dr. Daniel Kindelaire. He was on previously talking about gut health and Lyme disease. I'm going to actually put that down below in, um, in the comments section so that everybody has access to that because it's a wonderful episode. He also has written a book called Recovery from Lyme Disease. I'm personally an avid reader. I think the book is great. I've probably read it three times, maybe more. It's an amazing read, especially for anybody that thinks they have Lyme or has been diagnosed with Lyme disease. Um, It's a great resource. Dr. Daniel Kindelaire, MD, is a nationally recognized physician with expertise in the fields of nutrition, allergy, environmental medicine, Lyme disease, and the healing of the body, mind, and spirit as a unified whole. He co-founded the New England Center for Holistic Medicine in Massachusetts and has taught extensively, including practitioner training courses at the Omega Institute, the the National Institute of Behavioral Medicine, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. He created and organized a Lyme Fundamentals course, which is presented annually at the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Conferences. He is the author of several review articles in medical journals and Lyme Times. His integrated medicine practice in Denver, Colorado, focuses on the diagnosis and and treatment of tick-borne diseases. In the past hundred years, a real change in our health, and I mean, both physical and mental health. I don't, I don't even separate those two. There've been so many changes in the human condition and in the Western world and United States in particular. So just think about it, Ann. We're talking about wholesale changes in our diet with among other things, the sugar in our diet going up like, like, the re, like a reverse avalanche here. And, um, but also, nutrient depletion because of soil depletion and so on, um, 
we've turned to having tons more carbs. That's really since the since the 70s or so. And now we have all this diabetes and obesity that we didn't have before then. People don't remember. But a lot of other things have changed. Look at all the additives they're putting. You know, you read the ingredients on a processed food and you can't pronounce after them. And then think of the hundreds, hundreds of thousands of xenobiotic agents, chemicals that we've never, the human condition has never been exposed to these before. It's, I mean, you can't find anywhere on the planet now where you're not exposed to these things. So it's not just pesticides and herbicides, but you know, you go inside and everyone's got air fresheners and the outgassing from the carpet and the paint with all that formaldehyde. But like I said, hundreds of thousands of these, we have no idea what the toxicity is. But what we do know is that they have the capacity to change epigenetics. So I'm going to describe what that is for, for uh, the, the people who are listening. While our genes generally don't change except over millennia with uh, so-called natural selection, there are proteins that sit on our genes and they turn the genes on and off. And the epigen excuse me, the epigenetics can be changed from one generation to the next, depending on their nutrition, depending on their mental state, depending on, on the chemical exposure. Um, and it, it's, uh, so each generation gets one more bank of epigenetic changes. They're not, we're not born with a, with a clean slate, but, but then, it, in successive generations, it's like a snowball. We're seeing more and more and more of this. And I just want to mention one other huge change in the human condition, which is the breakdown of extended families and community, the breakdown in safety, real safety. Um, you know, now, as you know, we've gone from that to nuclear families, more, more and more single parent families, some no parent families, you know, people living on the street. I mean, we didn't, you know, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't have homeless. There may have been down on the other side of the railroad track, some alcoholic and junkies that I never saw them. Now they're on every street corner, you know, like what, what the hell is going on here? And um, I won't get into a whole political tangent about that one, although we should maybe. But um, but the point is that that affects our nervous systems and that affects our metabolism. That affects that 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 is actually passed on to the next generation. PTSD can be inherited. I mean, it's crazy, right? But but when you add all that up. You, what we're seeing is an epidemic of a lot of illnesses. So not only Lyme, and I'm, I'm putting the pandemic in a whole other category, but, but Lyme disease is clearly an epidemic. But we're also seeing an epidemic in mental health disorders. We're seeing an epidemic in autism. We're seeing an epidemic in obesity and adult onset diabetes and cardiovascular disease and the autoimmune disorders. You know, so all of these things are getting worse, a lot worse. And I think it's it's 
a derivative of what's happened over the past century in terms of what we've been exposed to, what's been taken out of our diet, the changes in our social milieu, and so on. I just want to bring home to, to the people who are listening that, you know, we're told, and I certainly hope it's correct, that there's less uh, sexual abuse among children and families now than there was decades ago. And I, we all certainly hope that's true. But a century ago, if things were not good at home, the kid could go next door to grandma's or to their aunt and uncle. They could stay there. There were safe people around. That lack of safe people is huge in my estimation. It is really, really huge. And in fact, you know, one of the one of the primary um, modalities that we use to help treat these people who are have immune systems that are so inflamed and their immune systems are hypervigilant, you know, so reactive to everything that feels like a threat, is uh, there are two systems that are famous. Uh, one is by Annie Hopper, the dynamic neural retraining system, where people can actually shed allergies and reactivity by going through mind-body exercises. The other is the Gupta protocol. And people, this has really, really helped. And it's not that they don't have organic disorders. It's that they're working with a mind-body principle where we're not talking about mind-body communication. We're talking about mind-body oneness, where, you know, basically whatever uh, impacts one part of our universe of who we are is, is going to be impacting our entire universe. And and working with our mind and limiting beliefs and so on, we can actually change our reactivity to some degree, which is not to say you shouldn't go on antibiotics when you need antibiotics. I'm saying all of the above, all of the above are important. So when we're treating these people, we give them lots of nutrients that you know about, like curcumin and boswellia and CBD to try to decrease inflammation. We give them antibiotics but very carefully, because if they have a die-off, i.e. a Herxheimer reaction, a flare when we start killing these, oh my God, it, you know, the, just imagine putting people into panic attacks or suicidal depression when they get worse. So we have to be very careful tiptoeing in with any antibiotics. We give them a lot of nutritional support to improve detoxification. Mold. Oh, my God. What a big problem mold is. Uh, you know, here we are in Colorado and say, oh, it's a dry state. We don't have mold problems. Oh, my God. Are you wrong if you say that? It, um, I actually this is in a book and I actually quoted it in, in my book uh, that there are more mold problems in the southwest than in many other parts of the country, which are much more humid, mainly because <laughs> the building standards are lower. You know, the mold spores are here regardless. It doesn't matter how dry the climate is, although if it's really dry, then the mold spores are, are you know, it gets windy and they're floating around even more. All that needs to happen is they get trapped behind a wall where there's some moisture because there's a leak in the eaves and boom, you got mold. And, uh, you know, I have people trying to buy a new house. I have people trying to find an apartment and like, they're having trouble because they can't find ones that aren't moldy. And the people who have these infections 
And these autoimmune disorders and these hyperinflammatory responses, they become really sensitive to the mold. Other family members might be just fine, but they're not. And it doesn't mean those other family members <laughs> aren't possibly having problems in the future because they're also exposed to mold toxins, which obviously are toxic. Uh, but the mold toxins can be really serious in a patient with who also has these multiple infections and immune disorders. So that's yet an, one whole other issue that we always have to look at in these people with hyperinflammatory responses. So the foods, the mold, sometimes we have to look at electromagnetic fields. Um, you know, um, it's pretty amazing. We had a guy come check our house, and I guess uh, it's a Gauss meter, I think. And he turns off all the electricity in our bedroom, and he's, and he's looking at the Gauss meter, and he says, well, this is pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. And then he gets to the head of the bed, which is up against one wall, and it goes whoop. And it turns out on the other side of that wall, there's a high power line. You know, it's, <laughs> and, and there are things you can do. We actually um, now don't use Wi-Fi in the house unless my wife needs it for something. We can turn it, we, it's mostly turned off and we just plug in directly in a handful of places in the house. Um, I, I, you know, the cordless phones are terrible. They're, they're worse than the smartphones. But some, most people who have problems with EMS don't know it. Our exposure is so huge. It is so hard to get away from EMS at this point. But some people are aware of it. Some people, you know, like, well, I can't, I can't put my smartphone near my ear because my brain starts to jingle and jangle. You know, they have stories like that. They, those are the canaries because there are going to be more and more people like that. It's like where multiple chemical sensitivity was 30 years ago. And, you know, it was it was doctors like myself, because I used to have a practice big in environmental medicine were considered quacks, right? Because, because we were diagnosing people with MCS, multiple chemical sensitivity syndrome. And, you know, we couldn't really explain it. We have theories, uh, but it, it was clearly real. All we had to do was believe our patients, right? Well, now it's, we still don't really understand it, but I can tell you my neighbor, he's, uh, he's an, uh, I'm not sure exactly what his position is, but he's an administrative position of a very large allergy clinic. I mean, like 12 different offices around Denver. And, on the, and then on the door of each one, it says, don't come in if you're wearing a scent. You know, so it's now recognized. It's, you know, finally it's recognized that it's real. Well, I think in another generation, EMF sensitivity is going to be recognized. Of course, it's going to be too late. Our exposures are ridiculous at this point. I got a call. I got a call a month ago that, oh, they're going to be putting a new meter on my house. And I called them up. It, exactly. I said, are you talking about a smart meter? They said, yeah. And I said, no. No, I will not allow you to put that on the house. So I had to sign an opt-out thing, pay an extra 11 bucks a month. But, oh, my God, they, they spew such high amounts of EMFs. So please um, tell everyone in your audience, you know, don't if you, if you have one of these, there, I'm told there are some sort of covers you can put on them that will decrease the EMF 
output by 90% or something like that. But if you're offered one, don't get it. It's, you know, these are not good for your, for your home and family. These are not good. So, okay, I've been talking a lot and you've been so patient, nodding your head. Um, what questions do you have? Oh, I have so many. So great. I mean, I just wanted to let you go because you just kind of covered it, bam, bam, bam. And I just didn't really feel like I needed to interject. Um, going back to to just first a PANS case, can you give an example of what a parent might notice if they're suspicious that their child has PANS? Okay. Well, the onset can be at any age, but a typical scenario is when they turn two, three, or four and started tantruming, these tantrums were over the top. I mean, spectacular, violent, hours, screaming, destroying property. Um, often, you know, personality changes, kids going from loving nice people to be around to angry and oppositional, uh, having trouble making friends, uh, getting into fights with friends and with siblings. Um, they might, some of them will, will actually present with anorexia. They just like lose their appetite. Um, and, and then there's anxiety, anxiety, which then can become panic attacks. Uh, depression and isolation. These are all symptoms that, you know, we we think of, well, these are mental health symptoms, what's happening at home, what's helping in school, what's happening with friends. But when you put them all together, should make you suspicious that, you know, there might be an organic disorder here. Um, the, the two primary symptoms I mentioned, OCD and anorexia, those are really primary, but you don't have to have those to still have this autoimmunocephalitis. You might have to have it to, you know, to fulfill the case definition criteria, but that doesn't matter. It, you know, but just the anxiety and depression disorders, impaired cognition, you know, they can't do schoolwork anymore. And the, that was the, my following question. How do they do in school? Yeah, they really, you know, the teacher says, well, Johnny's just spacing out. You know, like he's he's not focused. He's not here, um, which is also interesting because adults will often describe. Um, I'm trying to think of the language that they use, but it's it's a sense of not being present. Like I'm just not here. Uh, it's a. I wish I could remember their language, and I and it doesn't come to me. But the kids space out and. Um, so, you know, and they might have physical complaints like they have belly aches or headaches, develop sleep problems and so on. Ticks, for sure. Um, you know, it could be facial grimacing or uh, so on. Here's another one, another physical symptom, chorea, that's C-H-O-R-E-A. That's a medical term for involuntary movement. So suddenly, you know, they're doing this with their arms or legs and you know it's just out of the blue for no good reason um that's that's famous in huntington's korea but but this is just part of that autoimmune encephalopathy 
Um, yeah, if you if you put it all together, it's like, oh yeah, it's really obvious. Sadly, you know, most pediatricians are not tuned into this, uh, at least not here in Colorado. Um, but uh, if there's any suspicion, you know, parents should go on a website and read up on it. And and um, there are, you know, besides myself, there are some doctors here in uh, in Colorado, a few of us who are, who are going to diagnose and treat this. So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues. But did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, alt-alt-fam-fam-med-med and have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. Have you seen, there, there's been a big movement with the highly sensitive child and sensory disorders. Do you feel like there's any link to Lyme associated with that? I do. Uh, I can tell you in my pediatric population with Lyme, as well as my adult population, but with the pediatric, it's somehow more on the surface that they do have sensory integration disorders commonly. They will often object to smells as well as touch, as well as light, as well as sound. You know, I, I actually, I was just talking to a parent this week and her 10-year-old still walks around with headphones. And it just filters out all the ambient sound and he can just listen at whatever volume he wants. Um, so yes, now that's not to say everybody who has sensory integration disorder has Lyme, but I think it's important to start asking questions. So, you know, if you're gonna, it's important not to pigeonhole. So if, if a child is labeled with sensory integration disorder, we have to ask more questions. What else is going on? You know, this comes back to uh, something we were talking about in terms of doctors having their own boundaries and, you know, that like, well, here, the kidney doctor only deals with kidneys. In, in my book, I, I, um, uh, I tell a story, it's the very end of the book. My wife uh, was admitted to the hospital on an emergency basis. She had severe chest pain and paralysis of, of her leg. And this was an acute episode, you know, and you know, we knew she was having something in her heart. We knew that she was having something neurologically. Well, her heart stabilized and the doctor, the cardiologist came and explained, here's what happened and she should be fine. I said, great. How does that explain what happened in her nervous system? Because she's still paralyzed. He said, no, nah, I don't deal, I don't deal with the nervous system. I asked the neurologist the same question. I, I don't deal with the heart. It, it was staggering to me, it, you know, not cur no curiosity. These two events happened simultaneously. 
Don't you want to understand what's happening in the big picture, what's explaining the whole thing and not just what's happening in your little corner of the world? I mean, but this is the way Western medicine works. And it's it's really it's really not to our well-being if you if you have a multi-systemic illness, which most are, if they're chronic, they're always multi-systemic. And, um, you know, and the doctors, they, they don't even talk to each other, let alone try to understand what's going on in the big overall picture. You know, that's, it's sad, sad commentary. It is. You, you also talk about neuroinflammation associated with PANS, but we also get neuroinflammation with Lyme and correct me if I'm, if I'm misspeaking there. Um, so what do we see with neurotransmitters? You, you discussed dopamine a little bit. What do we see with some of the other neurotransmitters? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not, it's not well understood. We believe that, that the neuroinflammation, which occurs with the infections, regardless of whether there's evidence of PANS, um, well, you know, I'm going to take a step back. I think if we started running Cunningham panels on Lyme patients, chronic Lyme patients who have neuropsychiatric symptoms, we would find a whole lot of people with positive antineuronal antibodies. Um, and, and some of that's been done. Uh, so I, I think that it's important for people to understand that Lyme and these other tick-borne infections, they don't cause problems the way we normally think of infection. We normally think of a strep infection or wound infection as bacteria invading tissue, disrupting the tissue function. And then there's a local inflammatory response that takes care of the infection and repairs the tissue. <coughs> Excuse me. But that's not what happens with these infections. In their chronic state, they, instead of attacking hardware or cells, they attack software. They attack our regulatory systems and disrupt normal regulations, or they disrupt our immune function, resulting in suppressed immunity as well as excess inflammation and autoimmunity. They, they, um, they disrupt endocrine function, and now we have abnormal hormone levels and they disrupt nervous system function. And in the nervous system, we see the neuroinflammation, as you mentioned, Dan. And, and it does, it, 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 we know that it affects some neurotransmitter synthesis and transmission. And I don't know more specifics about that other than the dopamine issue and specifically associated with PANS. Um, we know it affects the circulation in the brain, we can do spec scans on these patients and spec scans look at blood flow in the brain. And we see patches of brain that aren't getting good blood supply or sometimes global hypoperfusion. You know, no wonder they have brain fog. No wonder they, you know, can't find their way back home when they go to the grocery store. Um, and, that, and it can be that bad, which, which I just want to point out. Um, the people who have long COVID syndrome, 
That's where I was going next. (laughs) I know. So, you know, those of us who've been treating chronic Lyme, it's like, oh, yeah, we know this. This is what we see day in, day out in our patients. It's the same as long COVID. And I actually wrote an article about it. I just haven't figured out where to get it published yet. But, but. You know, what we're talking about is dysregulation. We're talking about inflammation, the autonomic nervous system in particular, where you see fluctuations in pulse and blood pressure, which can result in lots of racing heart and dropping blood pressure and passing out or just plain lightheadedness. But dysautonomia also can cause shortness of breath and anxiety and a multitude of other symptoms. Something else that we see in Lyme and in long COVID, we see excessive mast cell activation. So mast cells are are white cells, white blood cells. They're actually primitive. They're very early white blood cells. They contain almost 200 inflammatory mediators. And when they get triggered and discharge those mediators, you've got inflammation. Sometimes it's very obvious in terms of an allergic response, including anything from hay fever, to hives, to anaphylaxis, but it can just cause migraines and joint pains and belly aches and diarrhea, as well as brain fog. Any, anything associated with inflammation can be engendered by mast cell uh, degranulation. And what happens with mast cell activation syndrome is the, the threshold for this degranulation goes down in the sort of trigger happy and and instead of being relatively stable, they're discharging their contents and you get a lot of histamine reactions and uh, and it's really terrible. So one of the things that we do with all of these patients is we try to stabilize mast cells and we give them antihistamines and so on. And I meant to mention that previously, but that's happening in the long COVID patients as well. They also have food sensitivities. This is all in the literature. They also have dysregulation of hormones, uh, particularly adrenal and thyroid. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the worst ones tend to have mold problems, you know, because it just adds on to an already inflamed body. Um, What else? I'm trying to remember what I wrote in this article. You know, the symptoms are so similar, you know, severe fatigue, uh, severe breathing problems, which can happen both with both with the tick-borne infections. It seems to happen maybe even more with the long COVID. And the mechanisms may be multiple, but different kinds of breathing exercises, probably the autonomic nervous system. There's a whole big thing uh, with the vagal nerve. You know, the vagal nerve is this central nerve, and it has a, a lot to do with with balancing immune responses. And the vagal nerve, you know, directly stimulates the heart, the gut, the lungs. It, it, there's um, different branches of the vagal nerve. So we think of it as this one sort of monolithic entity and what it does, but it, depending on which branch, it can do a lot of different things. And if certain branches are, are stimulated, it can really make us feel like we want to die. I mean, it's, you know, versus other branches, which, you know, sort of brighten our load. So um, at any rate, it, you know, these are all things that can be balanced with attention. There's books on polyvagal exercises. 
the vagus nerve gets stimulated by mast cell degranulation. And in turn, the vagus nerve comes back and stimulates the mast cells to degranulate. I mean, we have these kind of self-perpetuating cycles going on in both long COVID and in chronic Lyme. Another thing is that we don't know if people with long COVID, we don't really know if the virus has been cleared. There is evidence in many of them that the immune system has been suppressed and they continue to have virus in their system. And even if they don't have the virus in their system, they often still have the spike protein in their system and the spike protein can cause inflammation. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, so yeah, these patients really look alike. The article I wrote is titled what, what chronic Lyme can teach us about long COVID. And Do you think that some of the, uh, the long hauler COVID patients, and this is probably an opinion because you don't really know, uh, would have Lyme disease? You know, this is really interesting. Um, you know, I see people who I know already have Lyme disease, right? But right. I have a colleague in New Jersey who has seen a lot of both long COVID patients and people with uh, post-COVID vaccine issues. And she said that the most common thing she sees is a trigger of their Bartonella in particular, as well as other infections. And this is often in people who didn't know they had these underlying infections. So I think it's I think it's likely that we know we know that viruses can trigger uh, Lyme from a dormant to an active infection. We know that the virus, we've seen this, particularly with Epstein-Barr, we've seen where it'll make it much worse. Uh, we've, we've seen <laughs> the reverse. We've seen where Lyme will make Epstein-Barr worse as well. Um, so I think you're, I do think you're correct. I think that, that uh, any virus, but particularly something as virulent as SARS-CoV-2, has the potential to uh, uncover underlying infections that may have been dormant. And Lyme and its co-infections, it can be dormant. There's some people whose immune systems really keep it in check. And then it's not until something happens like SARS-CoV-2 or some other viral infection, or interestingly, head trauma or stress or mold exposure, you know, or, you know, sadly, vaccines. You know, it these things can trigger a dormant infection to become active. That's, that's good information. I can, I can talk to you all day. You know that, um, one final question, you mentioned sugar and you mentioned carbohydrates as a big contributor to some of the mental health uh, disorders that are going on. Why? I mean, sugar is inflammatory, but is there more to that story? Does it feed, you know, it feeds Lyme, et cetera. So let's talk a little bit about that. That's a good question. So there's a few things going on, but I want to share something with your audience. In the 1950s, there was a Professor Yudkin in Great Britain who was writing papers connecting sugar with cardiovascular disease, which then as now, is the most common cause of death 
in the Western world. Okay. Well, the Harvard School of Public Health, they went public. Those research studies by Yudkin, they're flawed. And the problem is fat. The problem is, you know, fat was, is going to raise your cholesterol level and you got to go on low fat diets. So this is this is before you were born, right? So this <laughs> Probably. Is, so this is like, you know, it, starting in the 50s and then into the 60s, Harvard School of Public Health was the major proponent of this. It turns out the Harvard School of Public Health was getting a lot of money from the food industry. I mean, a whole lot of money. And they were getting bought off. Now, this isn't a conspiracy theory. What I'm describing to you has been printed in medical journals, okay? And they're getting all this money to say, oh, the, the, the problem isn't sugar. So what happens is the food industry, they're happy to take the fat out because, you know, that's going to make for a shorter shelf life anyway, whatever. So but what happens is you take out the fat and and it doesn't have much taste. So what do they do? They put in a lot more sugar and and they're telling people, well, you shouldn't eat so much meat because that has saturated fat. What's happened to the American diet after that is that people went on much higher carb and higher sugar diets. And it's since then that we have seen a astronomical rise in obesity and diabetes. I mean, astronomical. When I was in training, which was the 70s, adult onset diabetes, we never saw it in anyone less than 40 years old, never. And those people had to be really obese. Now, they're actually diagnosing it in children. So here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Um, adult onset diabetics don't lack for insulin. The situation is they have something called insulin resistance. And what happens when you have sugar and carbs is your blood sugar goes up and that in turn stimulates the pancreas to start releasing insulin. The insulin is a messenger molecule. It's a hormone and it attaches to receptors on the cells and it gives a message. The message is open your door, take the sugar out of the bloodstream into the cell where it can be metabolized. And then the blood sugar comes down. What happens in people with insulin resistance is the insulin comes knocking at the door, no one answers. So then the pancreas puts out even more insulin and more insulin until the door finally opens. So someone can have totally normal blood sugars, but for a long time, their insulin levels keep on going up and up and up. So this comes more directly to answering your question. When insulin levels go up, that's bad. Insulin levels going up increases your rate risk of heart disease. It increases inflammation. It, it causes people to be fatigued and sleepy. People who have a high carb meal like Thanksgiving and then get sleepy. It's not the turkey and the tryptophan. It's the carbs and probably some beer and wine. And at any rate, you know, which is also carbs. And, and so insulin is a bad actor, contributes to a lot of inflammation. But here's another thing it does. It messages the cells to take that sugar and make it into fat. And that if you need to break down something for energy, don't take it from the fat, take it from your glycogen stores in the liver. So, so basically, it then continues to add weight to you. And, you know, 
really uh, the percentage of uh, at least a third of the American population is is obese by by strict standards. So I think it's more than twenty percent overweight. At least I think it's over it's over a third. So you know, and then the incidence of adult onset diabetes. But these people also have all these inflammatory disorders and other complaints related to that. So here's the other issue that. I, I talked about how people develop food sensitivities because their bodies are inflamed states and now they're becoming more reactive. The more common food sensitivities are sugar, yeast, grains, and then you can throw in eggs and dairy. Those would be the most common. And so there you go. That's what you're going to get, particularly in a high carb diet, right? So uh, and if people want to lose weight now, you know, there's a ton of books out there and they that all say the same thing, you know, basically go on a low glycemic diet. By definition, low glycemic means means that it has a low stimulate stimulatory action on insulin release. That's the definition of low glycemic. So so uh, so sugar has uh, by itself suppresses the immune system but it also will result in these insulin responses, which increase inflammation and just make symptoms worse and harder to control. Well, thank you so much for, for being here and, and sharing your knowledge. I mean, always, you just have a plethora of knowledge. You're always learning more every time I talk to you. So it's pretty amazing. It was amazing to, to hear you speak today. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.